Welcome to episode number four of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this show, we're going to talk to two club class pilots who both placed first, but on different continents. British pilot Jake Brattle flew in the World Junior Championships in Hungary, and Argentinian pilot Carlos Ucci flew in the Pan Am Gliding Championships in Canada. Both of these pilots were flying older gliders, but were having just as much competitive fun as the pilots flying the latest, greatest glass ships. We're also going to go back 75 years to talk about one of the largest and most controversial combat glider operations of World War II. Over 400 combat gliders were used during the infamous Operation Market Garden, which took place in September of 1944. The objective was to capture strategic bridges over the Rhine in eastern Holland. We talked to historian Mike Peters, who has just written a new book called Glider Pilots at Arnhem. That's all on edition number four of The Thermal. The 2019 Junior World Gliding Championships were held this summer in Zeged, Hungary. 44 pilots flew in the club class competition and they flew a total of 12 challenging contest days. The United Kingdom's Jake Brattle won the club class. This was his second time at the Junior Worlds and his last because he'll be too old for the next Junior Worlds competition. Jake is now back in the UK where he's flying in the 2019 British Junior Gliding Championship. I've reached him at the Bristol and Gloucestershire Gliding Club. First of all, Jake, congratulations. This is a big win. Thank you very much. And right now you're flying in the British Junior Nationals. How's that going? Yes, I'm competing at the UK Junior National Gliding Championships. They're taking place at Nymphsfield, which is in the southwest of England. And how's the uh, the flying going? Uh, we've had three out of five uh, contest days, and I think we'll get another two. So uh, by UK standards, that's quite a good competition. And what glider are you flying? Uh, I'm flying an ASW20, the, the same glider that I flew at the World Championships. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult in, in this competition because the handicaps are not quite as favourable for the ASW20. Um, but so far, so good. Back, back to winning the World Juniors earlier this summer. You're flying in a region you're not familiar with. How did you do it? What was your winning strategy? Um, we, we went out to Hungary last year in J June, July for a, uh, to take part in the Hungarian Cup Class Nationals just to try and give us a bit of insight into the local conditions and the local area. Um, and I think that was a huge help in hindsight. At the time, um, last year when we were out there, the first, I think, three or four days were rained off and all of our friends were having great flights in France and in the UK where we would have been otherwise. And we were thinking, oh, what have we done? This is a terrible mistake. But um, the days that we did fly in Hungary were so useful for learning about the, the different terrain types, the different soil types. And particularly, they've got two big rivers that go through the contest area and they have a big influence on the soaring conditions. And I think that getting to know um, how to deal with those really helped us this year. So why were the rivers such an issue? The, the rivers, the, there's a different soil type that lines both sides of the rivers. And if you're having to cross the river on task, um, you quite often find a, a big patch, 20 to 30k, of slightly suppressed soaring conditions. Sometimes the clouds still look good, um, but they never quite deliver what they have been delivering 
um, around the other areas of the contest um, area. The, the the soil is much drier and much sandier um, in in the central parts away from the rivers and towards the rivers it's more like clay soil and and much uh, colder and damper and yeah it's just never quite as good over the rivers. So what was your strategy to to deal with these rivers and the uh, difficulties encountered? Yeah, it was generally to to try and anticipate that it was going to be a lot worse to to not be suckered in by the clouds um, and to try and get high a long time before. Um, and making sure that we're never, hopefully never getting low uh, near the river, because that's where it got really difficult. So during the actual contest, did you wind up having any uh, any landouts? Yeah, we had two mass landout days. Um, the first one, they set a 500k. They said it was going to be the best soaring day of the competition. Uh, and it was very good, but unfortunately, some high cover came in and made it uh, slowed us right down towards the sort of last 150k on task uh and and that's when we the whole you know uh, group of gliders uh bunched together and we we were then in survival mode just trying to stay airborne and trying to fly as far around the task as we could i think we got within about 30 kilometers from home um so that was not too bad but being on the highest handicap we really get uh screwed over on those mass landout days so those mass landout days were just about survival but probably the most challenging day was the second mass landout day um which they set a small task i think 150 kilometers something like that and it was in the blue and the the operating band was something like 1000 to 2500 feet above the ground it was it was quite tricky yeah and and the the thermals were weak um so but that was really quite satisfying and enjoyable to see just how far you could fly on a day like that. Now, your your colleague Finn Slay, he placed second at this competition. Did you guys team fly? Yes. And how did that work out for you guys? Yeah, uh, t- uh, Finn and I have been team flying for the past two years, so we've been we've had lots of practice together. Uh, we got a, a quite a similar flying style. We've worked really hard on communicating effectively to each other. So. So yeah, it was very natural to team fly with him, and that was a big part of our success was uh, being able to use two pairs of eyes, two brains to look at the sky to make the decisions. Um, and yeah, basically, I couldn't have done it without Finn. He was a massive help to me, and I think in the end, I was a massive help to him. So it was a perfect team result. Now you, you mentioned flying style. What's your flying style? Um, I would say I, I'm. I, I much prefer cumulus to blue days. I, I'm really strong when there's a, a sky that you've got to try and choose a, a an efficient route through the sky. So I really like to minimise my thermaling and maximise my my routing. Um, and I'm probably a little bit more conservative than most glider pilots I've competed against. Uh, and Finn's very similar, quite quite conservative as well, very strong. Uh, with routing uh, and and actually probably where I have weaknesses he he has strengths so coring climbs very very quickly he's very very good at that and that's really helped both of us through the competition I gather you've got to be really in sync with each other like the other pilot to really make this work yeah no it works well and it just so happens that we're also um, flatmates so we we spend a lot of time together we know each other very well uh, which, which really helps we can't get away from each other He's a bit younger than me. He's 22, so 
he's got a few more juniors ahead of him. He, um, but of course, at this competition, we both want to win. So we we're not team flying anymore. We're we're both trying to beat each other, which makes it a little bit more challenging, but also a bit more fun. Talk to me about the uh, the glider you're flying. Yeah, it's an ASW twenty. It's it's a German one. Um, Finn was flying a, a French ASW twenty. We bought them earlier in the year, or uh, I should say, we we we've got a great colleague that um, has tried to support us. So we basically bought these two ASW twenties as projects. They were both in very very poor condition. Uh, we bought them quite relatively cheap. We then did them up over the winter got them refinished, did the instruments, um, basically made them competition ready, sort of took them from really bad condition to being competition ready over the winter. Were you able to get any kind of sponsorship? Um, yeah, it, it, I, I actually work for the one of the avionics distributors in the UK. So I work for um, the LXNAV distributor in the UK, which, which helps. Uh, my My work predominantly is in instrument panel rebuilds, um, install anything to do with avionics, so that's where I I've got um, my strength, I guess. So what's next for you on the on the competition front? Yeah, um, next I guess is to try and get into the senior world championships next year. Um, the s- selection process in the UK is it, done by voting, and the voting I think takes place in September. So. I've got to wait to hear from the outcome of those votes. If I get selected, um, I'll, I'll very likely be in the club class. Um, and the senior world championships take place in the Champagne region in France, um, I think in July next year. And that, that will be my next big goal. Um, if, if I don't get selected, I'm hoping to do some mountain flying. That's something I have, haven't done very much of and I'd really like to learn. So that'll be my focus for next year. So, Jake, where did your obvious passion for gliding come from? Where did you uh, pick this interest up? Uh, so, my granddad was a pilot in the Royal Air Force back when, um, uh, d- during the war, he he was training in Canada, of all places. Uh, he was training in Avaransons, and ever since then, he he'd um, always wanted to go back to flying. He never quite uh, actually, yeah, he was he was never brought into service during the war. Uh, the war finished just as he got his wings um and then later in, i think in the 70s or maybe the 80s he got back into flying he started with gliding initially at lasham uh, and then he went on to just a, a share in a small piper arrow um and, and he flew me in that when i was very young i think when i was four or five years old and ever since he took me up flying for the first time i was um, committed that I wanted to be a pilot when I grow up I want to be a pilot um, and as I was growing up I sort of watched all of the documentaries on flying you know air crash investigation and all of the stuff on uh, Discovery Channel and everything and and I quite often found that all of the, the the pilots that were you know generally considered at being very good or very high standard or excelling in their field they almost all started as glider pilots and so I I was yeah, determined to start gliding as soon as I could. My granddad bought me a, uh, we call it a trial flight, which is an experience flight, that first flight you have in a glider. And ever since then, I was completely hooked on gliding. I was I just kept going back to the airfield. Uh, I went solo as soon as I could, which at the time was 16 years. So I went solo on my 16th birthday. Um, and then 
when I went to university, I started to meet other glider pilots that were similar standard, and we all started doing competitions. And I actually did my first gliding competition at this airfield where I'm competing this week at Nymphsville. It was a junior nationals. Um, I did absolutely terribly, but I was completely, completely hooked on the idea of competitive flying. And ever since then, every year I've just been, I guess, progressing and practicing and doing more competitions, um, building building my hours, which I think is the biggest thing for, for junior pilots to, to get better. Uh, and yeah, here I am today. So thanks for talking to me about your, your win in Hungary and uh, your flying background. Uh, all I can say is I wish you all the best in your uh, future flying endeavors. Thank you very much. Cheers. Jake Brattle spoke to me late August from the Bristol and Gloucestershire Gliding Club, which was hosting the British Junior Championships. And, you guessed it, Jake also won that contest. What a fabulous summer for this young pilot, who I'm sure will be representing Britain at future international contests. Gliding Championships were held recently at my home club, the Sosa Gliding Club, which is located about an hour west of Toronto, Ontario. Pilots from across Canada, the United States, and the Americas attended the event. The third largest team after Canada and the U.S. was from Argentina. Carlos Ucci won the club class after flying a rented ASW-20, and his fellow Argentinian pilot Mateus Pastor placed second. Carlos is now back home in Buenos Aires, Argentina, which is where I've reached him. Good afternoon. Carlos, congratulations on winning the club class at the Pan Am Gliding Championships. Okay, many thanks, Harry. So, you came up to a country that you haven't flown in before, you don't know the area, and you and your colleague placed first and second. What what was the uh, the key to your success? Okay. Uh, honestly, the, the weather looks like quite similar to we are used to flowing in Argentina, so this was not such big strange the, the only big difference maybe is the influence for the convergence that we have uh, in Canada with the lakes right but we not we we have not so many days with this kind of uh, of weather so honestly i think that the 80% of the days we've flown uh, was quite similar uh, we are get used to here in in argentina in our area of argentina so what what kind of area do you fly in in Argentina? What is the the countryside like there? Okay, in 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 our area, which is quite close to Buenos Aires, is we call La Pampa area. It's totally flat. It's it's much more similar to to the Toronto area, but without the influences of the lakes. Yeah. So when you came to the area here, what how did you use the knowledge you have to deal with the lake issues? You know, when the cold air moves in and stops thermals, how did you manage to get your head around that? Mm, well, I think that the, this part of the strategy was to follow or to try to understand what the, the local people were doing. I guess we pay a lot of attention on this, but then on, uh, honestly, we, we, we already saw that in maybe in two or three days we have this influence, but the rest of the day I think we didn't pay too much attention to these conditions. Yeah. Hmm. Now your your fellow Argentinian pilot Mateus Pastor he placed second. Did you guys team fly? What did you do? 
all days we've flown, we've flown the, the old four pilots together. And of course, you know, you, we have big difference in, in the sapiens we were flying. Uh, sometimes you, you can climb with the Cirrus or the Yanta, same as the ASW-20, but the time when you make the, the glides, uh, it's quite difficult for them to follow us. Yeah, you know, they, I think that the ESW20 is best glider for the crew class nowadays. Right. So you make a little bit difference. Of, of course, you play with the handicap, but in certain conditions, especially in in Canada, when the thermal strengths are not so high and the the glides, honestly, the LD of the of the glides we made were really good. I uh, also was astonished about it. Uh, you make you make a little bit different. So maybe in two or three runs, maybe you get five to six kilometers difference ahead to the competitors. So for Matia, was quite difficult to follow us to to Raúl and me that we were flying with the twenty. Yeah. So how hard was it for you to be able to rent a, a glider up in Canada and make that all happen? Because you didn't take anything from Argentina. In my case, uh, the owner, David Gosen from the Toronto Soaring, uh, he made uh, all the things work perfect. He helped me a lot. We have no inconvenience at all to 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 um, to rent the glider. Also, he helped me also with the camping stuff. He, right. he, he also helped me with that. So it was fantastic. And also, I know that all my mates uh, have no travel at all to get the gliders. This works really good. So what was the most challenging part of this competition for you? To not to be managed by the results. Uh, I already told here in Argentina, before going to the Panams, I went there to enjoy, to have a good time, to know people also, you know, it was my first international experience. So I, honestly, I never thought about the results. I, I went there flying to, to enjoy the fly. Also, some days I have, I have to, or what I should to change the way of flying to be a little bit more conservative and not to risk my way of flying. And and I didn't move about it. Uh, I also keep flying. At the like I like I like I wait to fly, uh, and I take my risk. Also being low many times, uh, but it's the it's the way it is and the way I enjoy flying. Uh, I have. No mentality of winning uh, in in contest. Not in this contest. In in any contest. Of course, this for me uh, was the first time I, I'm winning a championship. Also winning a task. I never won a task before before this this contest in my country. You you've never so, won even a, a day. No, <laughs> never. Well, you certainly figured something never, out. Never here. ever. <laughs> Did you well, uh, have any uh, land outs? Did you meet any Canadian farmers? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I have a chance to land out one day. That I think that we land out everybody, or maybe one only arrives. Uh, no, no, nobody arrives, they say, in the club class. Uh, that was quite familiar. We, I land out. The, the people from the farmer arrived close to, to the glider. Also, some people that they were driving in the road, they stopped. And also, I, I also came into the carpet to see how, how it looks. And also, they wait for my 
my team to come and they helped me out to, to rig the, the glider. So it was some really good experience for me. So based on that, I imagine you're going to be trying to fly in some more international competitions. I would love to. This 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 was really good. But also I have to tell that this contest in particular was such a most uh, friend reunion, a friend meeting with the people and also such competitive contest. But this was made because of the people and for the organization. They make a very friendly competition. Well, you, you've certainly succeeded. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you succeeded beyond your expectations, but uh, you, you certainly did a great job in, in uh, at the Pan Am gliding competition. Oh, yeah. It was a really big surprise for me also. <laughs> I didn't expect it, honestly. What's next for you, Carlos, on the on the competition front? Okay, uh, now in end of November we have the national club class competition, which already I think there are already forty five pilots in the list to compete, and will be quite tough because all the best pilots of my country they want to participate in this in this contest, and this will be two weeks. Uh, the last week of November, first week of December of this year. So what, uh, this is the, the first competition we have, and then we have the 50-meter class, an open class that will be done in Azul, in my club, in in January. Well, Carlos, so it's, it's, it's nice been a nice amount of pilots. I was going to say, Carlos, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And, and once again, congratulations on, on winning the club class uh, at the Pan Am Gliding Championships. Okay, many thanks, Harry. And uh, let me thanks to, to thanks to all the organization of the Pan Am, starting from Virginia to Tom. And of course, uh, no words about the, the Ken Sorensen made for the championship as a director. It was a superb job. Thunder. So this makes this championship successful for everybody, I think. Excellent. All right. I hope to see you again soon, Carlos. Take care. Okay. See you. Bye. Carlos Ucci spoke to me from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Carlos won the club class at the recent Pan Am Gliding Championships, which were held in Canada. <laughs> Now a quick note about our sponsor Fox One Corporation, the place to go for all your gliding avionics, instrumentation and software needs. Dave Springford is the man behind Fox One Corp, he's a world class competition pilot and knows what he's talking about. So get in touch with him at foxonecorp.com and talk to him about your gliding needs. That's foxonecorp, all one word, dot com. is the 75th anniversary of both D-Day and Operation Market Garden, the ill-fated attempt to capture the Rhine Bridge at Arnhem in the Netherlands. What many modern-day glider pals don't know is that the glider was a weapon of war used by both the Germans and the Allies. Huge British Horsa and Hadrian gliders, along with American Waco gliders, were used extensively during combat operations in Sicily, D-Day, and Operation Market Garden. Mike Peters is a historian and author of the recently published Glider Pilots at Arnhem. I reached Mike at his home in Ipswich, England. So Mike, it's September 17th, 1944. Describe this massive aerial armada that's landing in the fields west of Arnhem. 
Well, really, uh, you're talking about gliders first. Uh, the, the glider lift came in before the parachute lift, uh, unusually, to land the heavy equipment first. So, And you're talking, rather than a mass formation, as we would see with an uh, American formation, the, the, the Brits tended to fly in streams and uh, to uh, intervals because the, the, the aircraft tugs had so many different... Uh, engine performance ratings etc so they would fly in in a stream so if you're at the beginning of the stream then uh, you're in a good place you had the, ch- the pick of the landing zone and you were duty bound to try and get as far up the field as you could to leave space for your uh, your comrades in the, in the gliders that came behind and the gliders you'd see would be primarily would be uh, uh, hawser gliders uh, you know with about uh, an 80 foot wing uh, 80 foot wingspan and a 67 foot length fuselage carrying, carrying on average 20 guys or a jeep and a field piece or, uh, you know, mass in, uh, air landing infantry. Uh, but in amongst them would be Sea Squadron and Glider Pirate Regiment who would be flying the Hamel car, which is a, a huge thing, the size of a four-engine bomber. It could only be towed by the Sterling because the st- short Sterling was the only thing that had powerful enough engines to pull it. And um, that could carry any, anything up to a light tank. Uh, and in the, on, For Arnhem, it was carrying... Uh, Lots of heavy lift supplies, but the, big, the most important thing they were carrying was 17-pounder uh, anti-tank guns with, mm. the, with their three-ton trucks to pull them around. So uh, a mass formation, as you said, um, with uh, out, 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 above, around, and all, all over the place, about, about 1,000 fighters in the air uh, protecting this, uh, this stream of aircraft going into uh, Eindhoven, Nijmegen, and Arnhem. So the noise was uh, would have been pretty loud the sky most people describe describe the skies being black with aircraft but when you're in a glider cockpit and you once you've cast off and you've left your tug you know it all goes quiet obviously uh even these big gliders flew fairly silently and you, you're more concerned about getting down in one piece you've, what? you've got no, no engines to go around again so. what time of day was this uh, taking place this is on a sunday afternoon uh, so after the, after what had happened in Sicily with landing at night and landing gliders in fields with low brick walls etc and because of the uh, um, uh, quite potent German night fighter threat just across the border in Germany it was, it was decided to land in daylight uh, to increase accuracy to allow them to be protected and also on the Sunday morning to allow the Allied tactical air forces to root out and destroy any anti-aircraft positions so they spent the whole morning attacking flak barges and flak positions along the way and in and around Arnhem and the landing zones at Nijmegen and uh, and, and uh, Eindhoven as well. So um, it, was, it was a busy, busy day. The, the visibility was great and for the paratroopers they called it a, a, a naffy drop because it was like a training jump where you just jumped out over England and rolled up your parachute and walked across to the naffy truck for a mug of tea. You know, very, <laughs> very, very few casualties on the way out. It was total surprise to the Germans and Allied air power was absolutely overwhelming. Nothing got near those formations. No Lone Luftwaffe aircraft intercepted the formations. Now, I've seen some of these aerial photographs of all the gliders in the fields. How many gliders roughly were in use that day? Well, in the, uh, the British landing, don't, don't forget that half of A Squadron, about uh, about 30 gliders, land down at Nijmegen, but the rest, the main body of uh, First Airborne Division is carried in by about over the three lifts, over four, nearly four, over 400 gliders come in uh, to to bring. So the glider pilot regiment is at zenith of its strength. So it fields for Market Garden about 1,200 pilots, two wow. to an air, each aircraft. So uh, 
you um, you can see the scale of this. It's it's um, it's phenomenal in scale, hard to imagine, and it never ever as a regiment gets that many glider pilots again. That they've had to uh, fast track people through for Normandy. They've gone from a very long training pipeline to a much shorter one for second pilots, who are essentially doing like an operational conversion when they get onto heavy gliders. So you've got a first and second pilot in each cockpit, ideally, and uh, mainly senior NCOs. So mainly sergeants and staff sergeants, with a few officers. Uh, so um, it, it's a lot, a lot of gliders in the air. And um, famously, General Student, the German Airborne General, sort of sees this armada coming in and says, you know, if only I could have this power in my hands. You know, it's, a, it's an amazing armada. It's just he can't believe what he's seeing. Now you put us in the cockpit a few minutes ago. Um, what altitude were these guys releasing at? So they're casting off uh, up, to, up around about 800 feet. And uh, you're coming in at um, initially 100 mile an hour, dropping down and lower, lower and slower. And the, the hawser had very large, what we describe as barn door flaps. It could stop in a very short space of uh, short short distance. And uh, so, if you look at the photographs, you'll see hawser gliders pointing in both directions in the fields. And that's because the second lift approach approaches around a day, couple of days later lands in the opposite direction to to use the space. And you can actually see the brakes uh, have worked really well, and you can see the tracks of the gliders if you look carefully on the aerial photographs. Um, so it, 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 most of the pilots I've spoken to said, yeah, it was great to be in the first wave and to be landing first, but as, as the fields filled up, it became more and more difficult. It was, they describe it as being every man for himself because you're making your approach and you're looking left and right, and there's other gliders coming in faster and slower, lower and higher all around you. So it's, it's quite hard to imagine in, in the controlled environment of a a gliding club or, or a, an airfield but uh, a, a tactical landing this is very different well also you know i can't imagine eight being cast off at 800 feet with these gliders that are the size of c-47s yeah. 800 feet yeah. is what we and our modern sailplanes sort of start our, our downwind leg at i can't imagine yeah. having you know being in the middle of a combat operation and trying to put this massive glider mm. in a field with gliders all around you especially from 800 feet yeah, it's, it's it's interesting as well when you look at uh, the WACO, the American uh, Hadrian, as the Brits called it, the Hadrian glider, which is a very different aircraft altogether, much smaller, half the size at least of of, uh, of the Hawser, and uh, it, it's it's not using big flaps, it's using spoilers, mm-hmm. and it, and that's and it's all linked to the uh, the pipeline time of training the pilots when the Americans during the war, late late in the war. They immediately decide they're going to have a glider force. They're going to create it from scratch. They're going to have 10,000 10, gliders. So they need to crew these things. So their, their training profile for their pilots is very, very different. And they want the, the WACO to be much simpler and easier to land than the Hawser or the German gliders. So they design it to handle very, very uh, forgivingly and to have these spoilers. So it almost is described as almost hovering down if you fly it right on the right, the right way. Mm-hmm. So nice and slow and gentle it can be which is great on a training airfield in America, not what you want on a hot landing zone under machine gun fire. You want to get down as quickly and as steeply as you can and safely, uh, if you can do with a horse, so you can dive, you literally dive down and then make a very short landing. It's got very good brakes, but the wacko. Yeah. Now you just almost talked about approach. The, uh, the American forces. Now they were landing gliders near, I think further south in Eindhoven was as part of Operation Market Garden. What's yeah. the difference between uh, American combat glider pilots and the uh, Commonwealth combat glider pilots. Uh, there's quite a big difference, and there's a very famous letter written after after Market Garden by General Gavin, the commander of the US 82nd Airborne, where he, he basically says, you know, 
these guys, you, these American glider pilots are a liability, and it's not their fault, but um, essentially they are just a driver airframe. They're selected because they, they've got aircrew aptitude, they're trained to fly and land their gliders, and that's all. The concept of the British glider pilot starts off as, well, when these guys get on the ground, they're going to have to fight. And, uh, the guy in charge is a guy, uh, second in command initially, then becomes the commanding officer, a guy called George Chatterton. And he's quite an interesting individual, colourful character, and he, he wants what he calls a total soldier. So he wants his glider pilots to do the complete Royal Air Force uh, elementary flying training syllabus, Tiger Moths, Magisters, Fixed Wing Flying, to qualify, to fly solo, do the full syllabus, then to start learning to fly a glider, and then to go to battle school. And he says that they're all going to be uh, senior NCOs, sergeants or staff sergeants, they're expected to lead. So when they land, they need to be able to operate any piece of inf any piece of machinery in the back of that glider, whether it be a radio, a jeep, an anti-tank gun, a mortar, a machine gun. So they're being trained to do all of these things. So it, essentially what you're saying is that the, 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 the British glider pilot regiment, those pilots were trained as full-on combat soldiers, they land their gliders, and then their job is to start fighting, whereas the, the Americans' glider pilots were more taxi drivers. Their job was to get back home or get get yeah. back to England and be able to fly more gliders for resupply, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So a, a British glider pilot has a, a get-out-of-jail shit in his pocket, which basically says, I need to be released to go back. But, but before that, for the first 24 to 48 hours of any airborne operation, they're expected to be a light infantry reserve, and even in, in Italy, in the Italian campaign, they're being used as infantry by 1st Airborne Division. And Chatterton is horrified by this and says, what a waste of assets. You spent all this time training these pilots and you're using them as common infantry with the casualties that go with that. So, But they do are kept as a, a reaction force and for patrolling, etc. And at Arnhem, uh, they take very heavy casualties because they don't get out. And the casualty rate is so high that when you want to replace... So platoon sergeants, platoon commanders, uh, even company commanders, etc. You've got to, the only pool of manpower you've got left are the glider pilots. So they find themselves on anti-sniper patrols, fighting alongside the infantry, fighting alongside the guys they land with. So yeah, they are like that. And um, Gavin's letter talks about these uh, U.S. Uh, glider pilots saying, you know, they, they wanted blankets, they wanted food, they wanted water, they couldn't fight, they didn't, you know, didn't want to fight, they were quite belligerent, and others others were the opposite. They'd go off looking for a fight, getting into all kinds of trouble where they shouldn't be and without the training. So it's a very different animal. The, the two concepts are so different. Um, uh, but the British concept is not sustainable. It takes too long. Let's get back to the uh, actual battle for the, the bridge at Arnhem. Day mm. one, day two, talk me about what actually happened and the specific goal for the British Airborne. Around uh, Osterbeek, around the landing zones, they found to their horror, although they knew there were some German troops that actually 2nd SS Panzer Corps had been there for some time, a few, a few days, and even more importantly, uh, Field Marshal Modell, who's the German commander of all German forces for Army Group B, which is the Western Forces, actually had his headquarters in Osterbeek. So the man who could make the decision to release all German forces from the whole of the Western, of Western uh, Europe was actually on the spot. Mm. And it's famously portrayed in the Bridge Too Far film that they're after me and he leaves, etc. But as importantly, Beatrick, who's commanding 2nd SS Panzer Corps, uh, just down the road, sees what's happening. That They are recovering from Normandy. And where one of the things they did in Normandy was practice time and time again with map exercises and field exercises what to do in the event of an airborne landing which is to drive into the heart of it and disrupt it in the earliest stage. 
Mm. So before the first before the first British soldier has left any of the landing zones or drop zones, second SS Panzer are already on the move with the counterattack. So was this and considered a, a debacle yeah. in military terms? What? Uh, how do uh, historians think, think of it now? Well, uh, my my, it's one of those fascinating operations. What if? And it's people talk about the squandering of you know the, the coins burning holes in the pocket of Eisenhower having all these airborne troops and all these gliders and and, and uh, uh, transport aircraft that he has to use, otherwise it's use it or lose it, and the gamble. If you rewind the clock two weeks or one week before, the British uh, Second Army is routinely advancing 30, 40, and in some, some, on some days, 60 miles in a day. The liberation of Brussels is an example. And that's the when Operation Comet, which is the forerunner of, uh, of Market Garden, is being planned. That's the environment that they're thinking, the way they're thinking. Now, oh, the Germans have collapsed. The war will be over by Christmas. We just need to do a smash and grab. We'll land our airborne divisions, we'll put this airborne carpet down, we'll race up through with our armour, cover 60 miles, well, okay, we've done it in a day, let's allow two. Uh, but what they don't allow for is, a, is that actually the German front has stabilised, 2nd SS Panzer have been moved, Modal is there. And they, did, so they didn't know about that Panzer unit, right? Well, this is one of the, the disputes about the whole market gone. They did know there was German armour in the air, but they, they perceived it to be in, in poor state in low numbers and without spares etc you know and there's a famous scene in the film where they talk about they show they're being shown the pictures and another guy called Urquhart who's the intelligence officer saying there's more than we think there so in in the so, end uh, what was the out of all the glider pilots or roughly what was the casualty rate for these glider pilots at the battle of arnhem pretty dire actually if you uh if you take if you include when you remember the, the definition of, in the military of a casualty is killed wounded missing and taken prisoner um uh, it, it's almost 90 percent wow uh, if, you, if you include even though a lot of the guys get across the, the rhine operation berlin the evacuation you know and, and the, fa the fascinating thing is that um the, gl the glider pilots, and the reason I wrote my book about it with Luke Boost, it was so difficult to do, was because they were all over, they were in every facet of the battle. They're the first to land, because it's gliders that land first, uh, and they're the la almost the last to leave, because they used, the, again, going back to these multi-skilled guys they were, when it comes to the evacuation, and they need people to mark the route in the darkness out of Arnhem, and out, out of Oosterbeek, sorry, and across the Rhine, it's the glider pilots, along with some of the engineers and military police who are used to mark that route. Hmm. As they've got the gravitas of a CNCO and the map reading skills, etc. So they're amongst the last to, to escape from, from Arnhem in uh, Operation Berlin. Now, you, you mentioned, I think, 400 gliders used in this operation. What, what hmm. happened to all these gliders afterwards? Well, the theory was that they'd be recovered. Um, so uh, there was a, a, a Royal Air Force recovery unit, which came across to Normandy to recover gliders. And... Um, to, uh, to re refurbish them and use them again. Because um, although they were made of non-essential war materials, they, they, were, they were useful assets. But of course, essentially, we lost, we lost the Battle of Arnhem and the gliders were left behind. And uh, the Germans um, burnt most of them. And it was interesting, when I went back in 1994, uh, I was still serving in the military and we flew in helicopters, the, the glider pilots, onto the original landing zones. Uh, you could see the silhouettes. If it, it, it's just rain and it's in the summer, you can still see the silhouettes on the ground because basically, when the Germans burnt the aircraft, the chemicals that were used to dye the paint and the camouflage to make the camouflage of the gliders soaked into the ground. 
That's over spooky. the years, that's become less and less. Yeah, it is. So you could, say, and we had the we had all the references and photographs, and we were flying the same flight path and bringing these guys in to uh, to their original landing zones. But you could actually pick out some of the uh, some of the silhouettes on the ground of the aircraft. It must have been very uh, emotional some them, flying some of these guys yeah. back over the landing zone so many years later. And it was amazing what sitting next to them in the back of a, a Lynx helicopter, watching their faces because they could see where they were going, and they, they were almost reflying the route again, refighting the battle. But wow. in a good way, they just so, they were so glad to be back in the air. Wow! Uh, and and to be a, be with with fellow a, aviation soldiers, and, and so it was um, it was it was emotional. It was emotional actually. Yeah, right. Now, are, are there any of these gliders uh, under restoration, possibly being brought back to flying condition that you know of? Yeah, there are, there, there's um, one that's going to be across in Holland for the 75th anniversary, which is built by the Assault Glider Trust. Mm -hmm. And actually, most of the people who reconstructed it were actually airborne veterans. And that was built, uh, rebuilt uh, from scratch uh, to original plans. Uh, although it'll never fly because the, the uh, <laughs> CIA will never let it fly. But um, it's it's absolutely perfectly re reconstructed to the, exactly to the plans. There sure are other sections of the glider. Sure would be nice to see one fly again. Yeah, it would, wouldn't it? Mm. <laughs> well, there are enough Dakotas to pull it, pull one around, aren't there? Yeah, so, yeah uh, well, what did we but, just see? A couple mm. dozen of them at D-Day for the 75th. Yeah, I was, I was over there. I saw it. It was, it was quite spectacular. Um, uh, and also, there are, some, there are some sections of the Horsa gliders at uh, the Pegasus Bridge Museum and the uh, Army Flyer Museum at Middle Wallop in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got a bit of Hamilcar as well. Huh. Um, and of course, there are, there are plenty of um, uh, training glider hot spurs and things around Kirby's. Mike, before I, before I let you go, tell me a little bit about your career in the military. What did you do? So I was um, I was in the Army Air Corps. Uh, I joined as a, a 16 year old, as what the Army called a junior leader, and I, I, I and I left when I was 50. So I went I went through as a soldier uh, and left as a as a major. I was commissioned from the ranks, and uh, along the way, I did a lot of training roles. I was served in Northern Ireland, served in the Balkans, in Bosnia and Macedonia, Kosovo. Uh, I did Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, and uh, also Afghanistan. Hmm. Uh, all, all with aviation, uh, uh, quite involved in the uh, the Army Air Corps door gunning program, teaching teaching door gunners and, and developing doctrine for that. Uh, so, so air to ground shooting uh, from helicopters, that kind of thing. So yeah, then I left in, I left uh, five years ago uh, to become a full-time historian and, and battlefield guide. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, um, many years ago, I used to fly out of Lasham. I had a little K-8 glider, and I remember flying cross-country near Middle Wallop, and I think there was yeah. a big Puma helicopter, and those guys were having fun flying circles around me, and I know they were looking <laughs> at me like I was a little target, and <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe that was you. I'm thinking you're, thinking you're barking mad flying around with no engines, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, no, it's it, it's it, it, it's the most. Uh, although I flew gliders as, as a cadet, uh, I still I still remember that fondly. And and the, the an open cockpit uh, flying Sedbergs as an army as an air training corps cadet. Right. And then the nearest thing you got to that really was later on was door gunning with a side door open on a helicopter. You know, definitely uh, the way to travel. <laughs> well, Mike, if you ever get over to Toronto, it'd be my pleasure to take you up. I'm I'm a part owner of a World War II combat training glider called an LK-10A, and uh, if you get ever get over here, we'll take the back canopy off and I'll take you for a, for a flight. That'd be awesome. I'd love to do that, Harry. Really would. 
Listen, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for uh, giving us uh, some really good background on, on Operation Market Garden, the Battle of Arnhem, and the, the whole glider pilot combat operations. So thanks again. No problem. Thank you. Mike Peters is the author of Glider Pilots at Arnhem, which is available on Amazon. He spoke to me from Ipswich, England. The 1977 film A Bridge Too Far starring Michael Caine and Sean Connery is still worth watching if you want to learn more about Operation Market Garden. That's it for episode number four of The Thermal. I hope you like what you've been hearing. If you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. Thanks for listening to edition number four of The Thermal.